hey, two older couples were visiting together when the women walked into the kitchen. One of the husbands said to his pal, he says, the wife and I were at this really nice restaurant last night. His buddy replied, yeah, what's it called? He says, well, that's just it. I can't remember. What's the name of that red flower with all the thorns on it? A rose? Yeah, he shouts to his wife. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that restaurant we went to last night? Some folks just have a bad memory. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. When Daniel revealed the king's dream and its interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar was impressed. In chapter 2, verse 47, he said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. To our best estimation, 20 years now elapse between Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 3. And sadly, that was enough time for King Nebuchadnezzar to forget about Daniel's God. He ignored God's predictions and concentrated on his own ambitions. And in chapter 3, rather than bowing to the true God, the king of Babylon sets himself up, makes himself out to be a God Thus, his memory needs to be refreshed. Chapter 3 begins. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, the plain of Dura was about 6 miles south of ancient Babylon. It's interesting, in 1854, an archaeologist named Julius Opert, he unearthed a pedestal 45 feet square by 20 feet high, on which a colossal statue once sat. He believed it to be the base for Nebuchadnezzar's gold image. The statue was 60 cubits high by 6 cubits wide. Using the Babylonian cubit of 21 inches, that measured 105 feet high by 10 and a half feet wide. The image was made of gold, probably wood overlaid with gold, The polished gold glistened in the sunshine. It must have been an impressive sight. This colossal statue rising above the plain. It could be seen for miles. One scholar estimates that on its dedication day, 300,000 people gathered in the plain of Dura around this image. And realize its significance. In chapter 2, the Babylonian emperor had seen the image of a man. It represented history's Gentile world empires. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a panoramic overview of history, a really amazing prophecy. The head of gold was Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar himself. The silvered torso, the Medes and the Persians who would follow. The abdomen of brass was the Greeks and the legs of iron, the Romans. The image eventually crumbled and gave way to a great mountain which represented God's kingdom. But in defiance of God's message, Nebuchadnezzar duplicates the image in all gold. In essence, he was saying, I'm not only the head, I'll never be succeeded. My kingdom will rule forever. You see, people made the trip to the plain of Dura because their king was on an ego trip. Now, Here's an added note. The average human has a height to weight ratio of about 5 to 1. The king's image was 60 cubits by 6 cubits. That's a 10 to 1 ratio. 
which meant that it was very, very skinny. A possibly plump emperor envisions himself as a tall, gold, and slender person. Another tribute to his vanity, no doubt. Now, though all of chapter 3 is historical, certainly, it's also typological. For Nebuchadnezzar's actions are similar to a world ruler yet to come. We call him the Antichrist. It's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar's image measured 60 by 6 cubits. In the Bible, 7 is the number of perfection. But since man always comes up short of God's perfection, 6, one short of 7, becomes the number of man. Man was created on the 6th day, remember. He works 6 days and then rests on the 7th. Whenever man is idolized, he's measured in 6's. Goliath, the Philistine champion, measured six cubits. Solomon's throne had six steps and six lions on either side of the steps, so that when you saw him, you saw six, six, six. Solomon's yearly allowance of gold was 666 talents. Babylon, which was the fountainhead of idolatry, used the sexagesimal system of measurement rather than our decimal system. Its basic units were the numbers of 6 and 12. Of course, ironically, America also uses the sexagesimal system, at least in some degree. We buy donuts in a dozen. 12 inches make a foot. A clock has 12 hours. And again, it's all symbolic. 6 is the number of man and men. And humans are born worshiping themselves rather than God. The Antichrist will be the ultimate secular humanist. According to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, his number is, no surprise, 666. Well, like Nebuchadnezzar, he too will erect an image to himself, and he will demand that all the peoples of the earth bow down and worship. The parallels between Revelation 13 and Daniel 3 are more than coincidence. Well, verse 2 tells us, And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All the official dignitaries were required to be there. And so the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, And all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O peoples and nations, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, You shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's herald makes it clear that worshiping this image isn't optional. If anyone refuses, he'll be fired, literally. And this sounds eerily like Revelation, does it not? Antichrist also has a herald. The false prophet encourages the world to worship his image. Those who don't 
get executed. Notice too the herald calls for all peoples, nations, and languages to unite together around the worship of this image. Recall Nebuchadnezzar's policy of bringing his conquered people back to Babylon and integrating them into Babylonian society. That's what he had tried to do with Daniel and his three friends. One way to unify folks is through religion. Give them a common religion to rally around. This has been many a dictator's strategy. It was said of 1942 Germany, no attempt is made to stamp out faith in the supernatural. The policy is more blasphemous. It is to replace Christ. Religion is now counterfeited rather than dismissed. The Nazis are creating an anti-type of Christianity. They have made their leader their God. And this will be the Antichrist's strategy. He'll be anti-Christ. Not anti-God or anti-religion, just anti-Christ. In Revelation 17, in fact, he uses religion to climb to power. Non-biblical religion can be a powerful tool in the devil's hands. And notice too, Nebuchadnezzar's evil theft of music. Music was created in order for us to worship God. Here Satan steals the music and he uses it as the very signal to fall down before the idol. Satan is aware of music's powerful sway and often uses it in evil ways. Well, Verse 7 tells us, So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. And this word accused, it means to eat to pieces. It implies a savage accusation. Recall when God enabled Daniel to interpret the king's dream? He upstaged the soothsayers of the royal court. Here, apparently, they remember their defeat. And they seek to get even by taking a bite out of Daniel's three friends. And here's the accusation they level against these Hebrews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now here's what had happened. Picture in your mind's eye masses of people stretched across this plain. Here's a picture of the 2013 visit of the Pope to Rio de Janeiro. Three million people stretched across a two and a half mile stretch of beach. Look at that picture. Now this is how I imagine the crowd that day on the plain of Dura. Then all of a sudden, on cue, this mass of humanity bows their faces into the desert sands. Except three lone Hebrews. Talk about sticking out. Their defiance was pretty obvious. 
And we need to realize that this scene gets repeated every single day in your office, at school, at the block party, on the tennis team, in the gym. 99% of the people bow to the gods of conformity and convenience and comfort. They bow to the God of cool or hip or why make waves. Very few people dare to stand up for God. Will you stick up for the Lord, even if it means you'll stick out in the crowd? Will you be that guy? When the world looks on, like these Hebrews, we need to stand up, not roll over. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar was boiling with anger. A tyrannical despot doesn't often get disobeyed. Usually, he would have never even given a second chance. Apparently, he liked Daniel, and he liked these Hebrews. Now, if you were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what would you do? I can sort of hear the rationalizing. Hey, this is a sign from God. We got out of this. We're getting a second chance. He's showing us mercy. Hey, we've already made our point. This time, oh, we'll still stand. We'll just kind of hunch over a little bit. I can see these guys trying to rationalize. But not these guys. These guys are determined to obey God. The first two commandments of God's Ten Commandments forbid idolatry. That's why compromise was never on their minds. Now understand, these three Hebrews, they, they didn't start out to pick a fight. As Christians, we don't, we don't want to pick a fight with the world. The fight came to them, and often the fight comes to us. They hadn't logged a protest. They weren't staging a demonstration, but they knew what they wouldn't do. They would never bend. They would never bow to anyone or anything other than the one true God. Realize the Babylonian beef with these Hebrews wasn't that they worshipped their God. It was their refusal to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. You see, sometimes faith is measured by what we're against. This was why Christians were persecuted in ancient Rome. Did you know not a single Christian ever died for loving Jesus? That wasn't the issue. The Romans didn't care if you loved and worshipped Jesus, just as long as you also pledged allegiance to the Caesar. All you had to do was just take a pinch of incense, just toss it into the fire and confess three words, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. But as simple as that was, the Christians refused. For there is only one Lord, and that's Jesus. They would never betray him. And you know, this remains the issue today. Nobody cares if you love Jesus. In fact, most people say they love Jesus. But then they go out and do as they please. 
But do you love Jesus enough to follow him and obey him exclusively? If you do, suddenly you become a threat to their authority. Real Christianity refuses the gods of this age. We refuse to yield to the gods of any age. We march to a heavenly drumbeat. We please God, not appease men. And this is the stand that was taken here. Well, listen to them in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, our minds are made up. Remember in chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart, we're told, that he would not be defiled by the king's food. You see, obedience makes up its mind ahead of time. If you wait until the moment of the trial, the person who waits to decide might just buckle under the pressure. This is why obedience makes up its mind in advance. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 tells us, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as some strange thing happened to you. You know what Peter's saying? He's saying there's a fiery furnace in each one of our future. Hey, when it happens, don't think you weren't warned. Don't say this is a strange thing. No, he's telling us in advance. There's a fiery furnace in your future as well. This is why we're all told to prepare for that moment of decision. We all need to purpose in our hearts ahead of time. Never to bow to anyone other than our God. Well, verse 17 continues their response. If that is the case, in other words, if we're thrown in the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And this is real faith. God will deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar, if not from the fire. Even if they burn, they'll be free from his tyranny. They'll enter their heavenly reward and be taken to a place where he can never touch them again. They will be delivered from the king. God will deliver them either from the fire or through the fire. You know, so often we make the mistake of trusting in a particular outcome that we expect from God. Rather than trusting in God and letting Him determine the outcome. Our faith is not really in God then, it's in God working in the way we desire. This is why real faith is what I call but-if faith. I believe God can cure my cancer, but if He doesn't, for whatever reason, I won't deny Him. I believe God will turn my child around or save my marriage or ease my financial woes or stop the foreclosure. But even if he doesn't, I won't deny him. That's furnace-facing faith. It's not God who is being tested in our trials. It's us. It's our faith. And real faith cares more about maintaining my witness than in saving my skin. Outcome-only faith isn't real faith. Stuttered Kennedy was a combat chaplain in World War II. He ministered to soldiers on the front lines of France. From the battlefield, he wrote this letter to his 10-year-old son. 
Son, the first prayer I want you to say for me is not, God, keep daddy safe, but God, make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. I suppose you would like to put into your prayer a bit about safety too, and mother would like that, I'm sure. Well, put it in afterwards, for it really doesn't matter nearly as much as doing what is right. This is the kind of faith exhibited by these Hebrews. Verse 19 tells us, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. must have popped a blood vessel. His faith just got red. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He turns up the heat, which is what might happen to us in the days ahead. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. In other words, they were all dressed in flammables. Their clothes were going to act like kindling. was part of the torture. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fire was so intense that the heat torched the jailers who had escorted the Hebrews up to throw them into the fire. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. But the king gets a surprise. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And here is the glorious truth. Whenever we stand for Jesus, we never stand alone. He stands with us. When the king gazes into the inferno, he sees a fourth person like unto the Son of God. Who could that be but our Lord Jesus? Yet here's a question. Think about this. The king saw the fourth person, but did the three Hebrews? You know, usually when this is pictured, it's like they're all four standing there posing for a picture. But maybe not. I mean, the king saw the fourth person, but were the Hebrews aware of him being there? Our text doesn't tell us if the Hebrews were aware of the fourth man or not. And when we go through the fire, Jesus is always with us. But here's the issue. Sometimes we sense his presence, but sometimes we don't. He's with us, but sometimes we don't know it. On occasion, we feel the tight squeeze of the Lord's hand. But on other occasions, we hold on to raw faith. Yet in the darkest moments, the people around us can see Him. Even when we can't, people around us can see Him. 
They admire the Lord's strength in us. In the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Old Testament, there is a section here that doesn't appear in the Hebrew Bible that we're reading tonight. It gives us a vantage point from inside the fire. Let me read you the passage from the Septuagint. It says this, The angel of the Lord smote the flame of the fire out of the oven and made the midst of the furnace as though a wind of dew had gone hissing through it. In other words, the Son of God hollowed out from the surrounding flames a cool spot in the middle of the fire. On the surface, the furnace was intense enough to consume the guards who tossed in the Hebrews. But at the core, where you would expect the fire to burn the hottest, these three Hebrews were enjoying a peaceful and a refreshing breeze. If we trust that excerpt, it's likely that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were very conscious of their companion. It's ironic, but there are times when the sweetest fellowship with the Savior is felt in the midst of the fire. Well, verse 26 tells us, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. You know, usually when a house catches fire, the noxious fumes, they penetrate into the carpets and into the curtains. All the fabrics have to be replaced because of the stench. But not the slightest smell from the fire was detectable on the clothes worn by these Hebrews. They came out completely unscathed. The only thing that burned on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the ropes that had bound them. That's it. And this is why God allows us to go through these kinds of fiery trials. One of the reasons. It streamlines our lives. Everything that's an impediment to our growth. Everything that's been binding us spiritually. Everything superficial in our life disintegrates in these trials. The only thing that burns is what binds. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other god who can deliver like this? Now, I guess Nebuchadnezzar must have been a bit of a pyromaniac. He's still using fire here. He's still... But at least now his heart's in the right place. His intentions are better, no doubt about that. Verse 30 tells us, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, before we leave chapter 3, here's an important question. Where was Daniel? Where was Daniel in all this? 
Surely he was not one of those people who bowed to the image. No way. We know Daniel better than that. Daniel was probably away on business. At the end of chapter 2, he was promoted to an upper echelon post in Nebuchadnezzar's government. Perhaps Daniel was on a diplomatic mission. Maybe he was busy with affairs of state. But I don't think his absence was a coincidence. Recall, this story is not just historical, but symbolic. God is painting a picture, and Daniel's absence was no doubt strategic. Think ahead into the future, at the end of the age, just before Jesus returns. There will be a time of fiery trials on this earth. The Bible calls it the Great Tribulation. And the Antichrist will attack the Jews for not falling down to worship him and not falling down before his image. Jesus will protect the Jews through the fire, just as he did these three Hebrews. But Daniel represents one faithful group who won't be present for this trial. The church gets raptured beforehand. We'll be out of town on business. We'll be rejoicing in heaven. That's where we'll be. Now, Daniel chapter 4 is one of the most remarkable chapters in your Bible. Four. It was written not by a Hebrew prophet, not by an apostle of Jesus, but it was written by a pagan king in an idolatrous land. In fact, before this chapter was a chapter in your Bible, this passage was a royal edict read over all the Babylonian Empire. What if the Ayatollah in Iran issued a letter to the world acknowledging his sin and his pride and recounted how the Christian God had humbled him and brought him to the truth? Would that letter get a little attention? Of course it would. It would be a global bombshell. Well, this is exactly what we have in Daniel 4, if not more so. Verse 1 tells us, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. From the man who sought to reign forever... He's saying the world should know that there is a God, and it's not me. Prior to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has had a few brushes with God, but here he meets him head on. Verse 4 tells us, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is like some of us. He keeps going back to the wrong people for advice. When are we going to stop this? These were the same guys back in chapter 2 that Daniel exposed as frauds. It says, but at last Daniel came before me. That's who he should have gone to in the first place. His name is Belteshazzar. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit 
of the holy God. Notice how Daniel is recognized by the king. In him is the spirit of the holy God. Can you imagine anything more flattering than to be known as a man in whom is the spirit of God? To live a life that can't be explained without a reference to God's presence and power. Can you imagine anything more flattering? I'm sure there were days when Daniel moaned, Lord, why am I here? My heart is in Jerusalem, not in this pagan place, not in Babylon. And yet God had purposes for him in Babylon, didn't he? Just as he has reasons for positioning you where you are. In Jerusalem, Daniel would have been useful, no doubt. But in Babylon, God used him to steer worldwide events. You know, as a Christian, as a Christian minority, we can get discouraged. Often, we're the only one. But there is power in one. If you don't think so, just let a single mosquito get into your tent one night. There is power in one. When Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus to a white person, this one lady became a civil rights symbol that exposed the evils of segregation. She was one person, but she made a big difference. It's often not how many, but who we are and where we're placed that really matters. As a true believer, you may be a minority at work or in your family. That doesn't mean that God won't use you in a major way. The king continues in verse 8. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen in its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. This watcher was probably an angel. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. And this is where it starts to get very uncomfortable for the king. For the tree that's to get chopped to the ground is no longer referred to as an it, but now as a he. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar began to think that this dream is pointing to me. Verse 16. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times, or in essence, seven years pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. 
You know, it's interesting that God's angels are called watchers. They're watching us. Our failures and our successes are lessons to the angels, just as they carry out lessons for us. And what will happen here to Nebuchadnezzar will be a lesson on God's sovereignty taught to all of the world. He finishes, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. And I'm not sure the wise men this time didn't know what the dream meant. I'm not sure it was that they didn't know what it meant. I think it was more that they lacked the courage and the guts to tell it to the king. Daniel, though, had no such problem. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. And so the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. He's saying, Oh, I hope, Lord, I, I wish that this, King, I wish that this was not directed to you, but obviously it was. Daniel knew that immediately that this all smacked of God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. Here Daniel gives us an example of how to deliver a harsh message to a friend. Sometimes we have to speak hard things to our friends. But before the leaves, the words leave his mouth, notice he first shares his heart with Nebuchadnezzar. He tells him how much he wishes this wasn't for him. He, he talks about how much he cares. Remember, this man was Daniel's boss. They had a relationship. And together they had an empire to run. Daniel realizes the implications of this vision are going to be tremendous. He shudders at what this means. God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar. The head of gold, remember, is going to turn ill in the head. He's going to be humbled by a mental illness that's going to cause him to act like a beast. Nebuchadnezzar had once stood tall and proud. Now he's going to be made a stump. He's going to crawl aimlessly on all fours. You remember earlier, Daniel was tempted to eat the king's finest delicacies. Now for seven years, the king's diet is going to be weeds and grass, not the good kind of vegetarianism. Well, the interpretation comes in verse 20. Daniel says, The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Can you imagine the courage it took on Daniel's part? It is you, O king. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, 
and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times or seven years shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Notice Daniel says, break off your sins. The answer to sin is never taper off. It's always break off. Remember Jesus said of our sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Pluck it out and cast it from you. Repentance isn't slowing up while headed down the wrong wrong road. It's moving in an entirely different direction whatsoever. Verse 28 tells us, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. For at the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Notice for a whole year, God withheld his judgment. He was giving the king time to repent. But the king had ignored God's warnings. In fact, the king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? I mean, he's strolling around the palace. He's admiring the beauty of Babel. Its colossal walls and its colorful ceramics, its famous hanging gardens, its 53 temples to Ishtar, its seven-story ziggurats, its 10,000-seat banquet hall. Babylon was his boast. Look at all I've accomplished. Look at my trophies. Yet, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Just like that, God's judgment fell. In reality, God was the one who had exalted Babylon, not its king. And if you fail to give him glory, all he's given can be taken away in an instant. Classic example is Nebuchadnezzar. And God tells him, And they shall drive you from men And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Imagine President Obama suddenly disappearing for seven months. No speeches, no public appearances, no photo ops, nothing but silence from Camp David, except at night. A few daring reporters have seen a shadowy figure crawling around on all fours, chewing grass no less. Imagine if that happened. The White House press corps would be up in a roar. It would be amazing. Hey, yet Nebuchadnezzar's insanity didn't just last seven months. It lasted seven long years. 
It's interesting, there are recognized psychological conditions that actually fit Nebuchadnezzar's symptoms. For example, boanthropy is when a human thinks he's, a, he's an ox. Scianthropy is when a person thinks he's a dog. Lycanthropy is when he thinks he's a wolf. My, kid, my grandkids have elephant thropy. That's when they stick their arm out in front of their nose and they go, Aah! They think they're an elephant. Nebuchadnezzar went from glory to grovel. He went mad. He lost his mind. Greek historian Abedinus, he wrote of Nebuchadnezzar years after the fact in 268 BC. He said that the king had been possessed by some god. He he had probably become demon-possessed. And that he had immediately disappeared. Both descriptions fit our text. Jewish tradition tells us that it was Daniel who cared for the king while he was out to pasture. Daniel must have used his political clout to ensure the king's return. Remember, Daniel knew the dream that Nebuchadnezzar would be restored eventually. Which brings us to verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven... And my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. When did the king return to his right mind? When he lifted up his eyes to heaven and honored the Most High. It took seven years for the most powerful man on the planet In fact, the most powerful man this world has ever seen learned that he was simply God's appointee, that everything he possessed was a gift from God. You know, it's sad, but since Nebuchadnezzar, there have been many people who've had much less and yet have failed to learn this lesson. Hey, without God, we are all nothing but wild beasts, unable to govern ourselves, let alone another person. We all need to learn that heaven rules, not earth. On the morning of the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was discussing strategy with a commanding officer. We'll put the infantry here. We'll put the cavalry there. The artillery in that spot. At the end of the day, England will be at the feet of France and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. That's when his commanding officer interjected a warning. He said, we must not forget that man proposes and God disposes. Napoleon arrogantly snapped back. He said, no, I want you to understand that Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. Historians tell us what happened that day. God sent torrential rains and hail so that Napoleon was unable to maneuver his troops as he had planned. Disaster struck the French troops. By nightfall, France was at the feet of England and Napoleon was a prisoner of Wellington. I think that's how we could sum up Nebuchadnezzar's encounter with God. By saying, Babylon was at the feet of heaven and Nebuchadnezzar was a prisoner of God. Nebuchadnezzar continues in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand 
or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar wasn't content with being the head of gold. And so God turned him into a bust. He had to learn who was boss. God humbled the most powerful man on earth as a lesson to us. No one can restrain God's hand. The king continues, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. Now imagine reading this letter signed by the emperor. It's the explanation of his absence for the last seven years. After reading it myself, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven. I really do. To me, this is a prayer of repentance. I believe the ruler of the earth, the whole earth, became a servant of God. And you've got to love the chapter's last line. You've got to love it. The most powerful ruler this planet has ever seen writes these words, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. 